0: Hello, I'm Ariel
1: Kroon. and I'm Christina De La Rocha. Welcome to season three of Solarpunk Presence, the podcast introducing you to the people working today to create a
0: future we'd like to live in. Because if solarpunk as a genre of fiction dreams
1: about the just and sustainable world we'd like to live in in the future, solarpunk is a movement rolls up its sleeves, and gets down to the business of bringing it about in the present. Oh my gosh, it's the end of season three already. I can't believe it. Before we dive in, I just want to say two things. The first is check out our new website. Same old address, brand new look, and it is beautiful, and it's so much nicer than it was before, so have a look. Second thing is, please join our Patreon. We could use your support. And on top of that, there's all sorts of stuff going on there. We've got early access to episodes, we've got bonus clips, we've got little dispatches that Ariel and I write, all sorts of fun stuff. So please join in at www.patreon.com backslash solarpunkpresence and support what we hope is your favorite podcast. And now for the episode. Welcome, everyone, to the last episode of Season 3 of Solar Punk Presence. Ariel and I are going to talk about something that's been bugging me for a long, long, long time. And that is, how do you change the culture? Or I guess I should say that a little bit more accurately. How do you change the norms of the culture that you're living in? And I think this is really, really important for Solar Punk. Because Solar Punk wants to create a great future for all of us, or that's what we all want to do uh all of us who think of ourselves as solar punks and that means solar punk as a movement needs to do more than just putter around in the garden it needs to not so much dive into the culture wars with a battle axe no matter how much fun or you know stress or whatever that can be but it has to figure out how to change the norms of the culture that we're living in
0: that's a really good point christina And I am really looking forward to having this discussion with you because I want to ask you some things about, you know, like, what do you mean by culture and which cultures and what aspects of it are you hoping to change or what aspects of it are solar punks hoping to change in your opinion?
1: Yeah. Okay, well, I'm not an expert (laughs) on what culture is by any means, but I have my opinions just like all of us, and I think we're all kind of entitled to our opinions because we all live in a culture, and we all have opinions about the culture that we live in. And you know, culture is really, to me, it's just sort of, you know, the the way as a group of people you decide to live, and what you decide is acceptable behavior, and what isn't, and what your values are, and and what things you despise. What are the cultural norms, Christina, that uh, we're trying to change as solar punks? Then. Well, oh, I think we all have our own list. But I, you know, I think there's a a core list of things that I would identify that solar punk needs to get people to feel are totally outmoded and barbaric and totally beyond the pale. You know, like the way we feel now about chopping people's hands off as a punishment for robbery or about not wearing seatbelts in cars. So I think solar punk would like to live in a world where we're horrified at the thought of burning fossil fuels. I mean, can you believe they used to do that in the 20th century? Uh, It wants people to be horrified about the brutal treatment of the land and animals in modern industrial farming. Uh, It wants people to be horrified by misogyny and discrimination and, and violence against women and racism, both individual and structural. Um it wants people to be horrified that there was ever any such thing as homophobia or transphobia and discrimination and violence against LGBTQ people and is that the most up to date list of letters I'm I'm kind of out of the loop on this one
0: it depends what culture you're
1: in ah of course okay <laughs> um i think Solarpunk would also like to live in a world where we're like, oh, it's so weird that people used to insist upon gender essentialism, the gender binary, and the impossibility of gender fluidity. Yes. And wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where everyone was horrified by wealth inequality and overconsumption and so on and so on and so on. So for me, that's kind of Solarpunk's core list. I don't know. I've probably overlooked something. I don't know if you have anything that you'd like to add.
0: I. It's a pretty comprehensive list. Uh, My thoughts about that is that, like this sort of cultural change or these cultural norms are just kind of what is it that William Gibson said about the future? It's here, but it's unevenly distributed. So (laughs) cultural norms are (laughs) somehow they're here, but they're unevenly distributed. You know, like there are definitely pockets of people around the globe where these things are outmoded and barbaric, and there are people in pockets around the globe for whom this is just a daily reality that they have to live with. Yeah,
1: yeah. So how do, how do we, I mean, and you know, some of these things are quite new, even in the pockets where it, where the future has arrived, it has arrived relatively recently. And so it's kind of interesting to ask, you know, you know, how did we in some quarters decide that homophobia is horrible and wrong and all of this kind of stuff, you know, like how did that happen? Because in, in a lot of places, Places where I've lived that happened really recently, like within my lifetime. So I, I think that's interesting. And I, you know, there's people who study how you change norms, um, but nobody can really, and you know, they can kind of agree on the general ways that changing norms happens, but nobody's got like the magic formula whereby well, it works every single like, time. It were as easy as just flicking a switch. Sorry, to well, yeah, yeah, no, I mean. So, you know, so, I mean, it turns out that you can do it in several general ways. You can do it sort of top down through laws and nudges from governments and agencies, such as how now we're all like, oh, my God, buckle your seatbelt. I won't start the car till you buckle your seatbelt. Whereas, I mean, back when I learned to drive, I don't even think it was it was right when that started, but you didn't even it was only getting to be the point where cars that were sold had to have seatbelts oh right so we were we were still driving an old vw camper van that only had seat belts in the front seats and they were totally useless (laughs) i can remember being in in driver's ed so we actually had driver's ed at school in high school for like a semester and they showed us all sorts of horror movies about what happens when you drive badly if they Uh don't do that in canada Oh, no, they do. they do. Okay, I mean, they, you know, then there's always the, the like, oh, yeah, someone fainted and <laughs> at the side of this movie, which I think never actually happened. It was just rumor. But there was one clip that I remember. There were two clips I remember in particular. One of them pertained to wearing seatbelts, and it was just this advertisement for wearing your seatbelt that just was this shot, a camera following this pumpkin as it's flying through the air. And he's talking about how, you know, people are like, oh, I don't want to wear my seatbelt because I'd rather be thrown from the car and blah, 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 blah. I don't (laughs) don't want to get stuck in a burning car or whatever. And then at the end, it shows the pumpkin, of course, splattering on the pavement, like your head and the brains going everywhere, (laughs) you know. When I was in my car accident, my seatbelt
0: actually broke
1: my collarbone. But you know what? I would
0: rather have had a broken collarbone than a broken face and a broken head. The force that broke my collarbone was the force that was flinging me forward and would have sent me through the windshield. A broken collarbone is, you know, like, yeah, it hurts, but it's something that, you know, you eventually, like, it eventually can heal.
1: It is the most commonly broken bone in the human body.
0: I am very glad that, you know, it wasn't my face that was broken. And so, you know, that's a cultural norm that...
1: (laughs) Oh my god, sorry. I'm sorry I'm laughing, but there's this one American TV show kind of reality TV show that must play very late at night on U.S. television. I don't know, but it plays over here in Germany and, you know, weeknights, there ain't nothing on that's worth watching. And so I often end up watching this. It's called Botched, and it's about these two very arrogant plastic surgeons in Los Angeles somewhere. I don't know, Hollywood, Beverly Hills, someplace like that. And they fix botched plastic surgery things like bad nose jobs, implant, you know, breast and and butt implants that have gone wrong and this sort of thing. Oh, God, talk about a cultural norm. I mean, why do I mean, it's mostly women who come in with these these accidents, these plastic surgery disasters, um, to quote the Dead Kennedys there. And you just think, what is it about our culture that? has women willing to shell out tens of thousands of dollars doing such violence to their bodies. I mean, I can, I'm a, I studied biology, but I cannot watch these, these operations that they show because you're like, mm. it's all oh, that must hurt. It really, ah, oh, I, yeah. So this is, this is, this is a cultural norm that totally blows my mind. Yeah. The, the whole
0: line pain is beauty or beauty is pain, that sort of thing. From a feminist analysis, it's because these women are so desperate to fit into a certain cultural norm because they want to attain fitting into that cultural norm so that they can be desirable, so that they can, in essence, get a man or be attached to a man, because that is the way that you acquire wealth and some form of stability, actually. Nowadays, um, not even just wealth, but just some form of economic and financial stability. Because as a woman, you're going to be paid, you know, what is it, one-third less than men or sixty, sixty cents of the dollar. Yeah,
1: something like that.
0: Yeah. So there's no hope really of attaining any sort of financial stability on your own. So they feel desperate enough to try and force themselves to fit into a cultural norm that sets a standard for how women should look
1: in order to be desirable to men Um, it's so crazy because i mean it's not even true nope oh i mean it just all right so i guess i would have to add this to my list of cultural norms that solar punk should obliterate probably making elective plastic surgery beyond the pale um is probably not on solar punk's list but No, I would argue that elective plastic surgery sometimes
0: is is very, very affirming for people uh, and their mental health. So I think it would be sort of a case by case basis, but I wouldn't want anybody to feel that they are driven by negative, desperate forces in order to do elective plastic surgery. People want to get plastic surgery. That's fine. But I think it's the reasons behind it that I want to really poke at if you're feeling like you're not going to be a full human being or treated like a full human being unless you have this plastic surgery, well, I want to change the cultural norm that's making people feel like that. So I, I see plastic surgery as sort of a one way of coping with the way that society makes us feel.
1: To drag us back to our list of ways right, yes. <laughs> of these you know, sort of general ways you can change cultural norms. That was the top-down one, the, the the nudges from the government that got us from seatbelts to plastic surgery there. um, There are bottom-up ones. So, for example, um, recently I was reading in the news uh, how someone did a survey of Swiss people, and they discovered that this Fridays for Future movement, you know, the school kids going on strike on Fridays here in Europe, their actions have actually gotten the people of Switzerland to at least slightly change their behavior for the environmental better. I think another bottom-up one would be um, AIDS activists getting people to see LGBTQ people as human beings, as opposed to caricatures or child molesters or offenders against God who deserve to die. And seriously, when I was growing up, my parents, liberal progressive people, seriously thought all gay men were child molesters. That's just what they thought. Over the last 40 years, they've come to totally change their views about that, maybe not so much because of the AIDS activists, but because I think in response to the actions of the AIDS activists, a lot of gay people started coming out of the closet. And so in my mom's case, um, she was a school teacher, an elementary school teacher, and her principal, whom she totally respected and thought was the greatest guy in the world, turned out to be gay. So she had to reevaluate her prejudice, and she just threw it out. And, you know, so so I, th- these are also very powerful bottom-up ways where you can change cultural norms.
0: Yeah, I think changing the cultural norm to allow people to feel like they can be there themselves really helps to change other people's minds because I think it's that human-to-human connection. You know, if you know a gay person, you're not going to have all kinds of these sort of like toxic assumptions about how evil they are because you're like, well, I know my friend, Fred, and he is a very good Oh, partner.
1: yeah. Except if that worked so perfectly, then nobody would be afraid to come out to their parents. Yeah, that's true. There, there's a weird
0: power dynamic happening there, too. Um, that structural hierarchy. I would say this sort of grassroots, I mean, person to person, mind changing tends to happen the most between people who are peers. The parent-child relationship is something, I think, also that needs to be interrogated. Andrewism has a really good video about it, about how, yeah, the parent-child relationship, the parents are there to be teachers for children, but we've imbued it with some sort of like weird hierarchical kind of um, almost
1: disciplinary.
0: uh, Well,
1: it's a patriarchy thing, huh?
0: Yeah. So that, you know, children should be seen and not heard.
1: Yeah, and as long as your feet are under my table, you will finish your dinner.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, this like like and a lot of strange power moves that parents sort of exercise over their children that don't we don't necessarily need to do that, but people have been trained so much in our culture to think like this is how parents and children relate and this is how they act. And if you're not thinking through that carefully, then it's so easy to replicate those structures of oppression.
1: Here also, I think, is a place where the norms have changed a lot over mm. the last century. You know, if I look at the way, you know, my parents were raised versus the way I was raised versus the way people of my generation are raising their children or people of the, you know, the generation that has followed us have been raising their children. I mean, it's like every generation, it's like night and day. It's That's it's true. amazing. That's true. It, for the better mostly, I think. You know, I mean no way of raising your children is perfect. But but so I was watching um I was on a, a vacation with a group of people that uh my other half is involved with as part of a club. And um someone had brought their son. He must have been he'd be about thirty or so, and he his this son had brought his kid along. Kid must have been like a year and a half, maybe two years old. And it was so amazing the way this guy interacted with his son he didn't just say no to his son. He would say, well, we can't do that right now, or that's not a possibility, but what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And they would, he made it clear that there was room for negotiation and what the, you know, the kid's feelings actually kind of mattered. And there was was room for the kid to say, hey, that's not all right for me. And then it was offered alternatives. And I was thinking, oh my God, that did not happen in my family. And what a different person I would be if I had learned from the get-go that it was okay for me to speak up and say, hey, I'm not comfortable with that. Can we negotiate? Oh my God, my life would have turned out totally differently. You know?
0: Yeah. And like, I think my my parents did the best to raise me differently and better than um, their parents had. Like there was no corporal punishment or very, very little anyways. And, you know, like there was like... Oh, it was so long ago I can't really remember. Oh, I
1: know, but it. you know, there are places where it's against the law to spank your kids now. I mean, wow. <laughs> cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. Like I think that's an example of the way that the government can or or
1: governments can participate
0: in helping to nudge cultural change along, you know. Yeah, like... but
1: I mean, I really do wonder where this relaxing of, you know, the disciplinarianism of parenting. I wonder where it came from. I have a couple of family members and friends who are teachers
0: of small children. And I think it has a lot to do with the way that education was really sort of rethought in the 70s of like how teachers approach young children and how those teachers were, you know, people who had young children themselves. Right. And they were influencing their
1: friends. Christina here breaking in to pass on a message from Ariel, who wants listeners to know that we're aware that we're talking about the Western educational paradigm and about a family structure and hierarchy according to European settler standards. And as I'm coming to you from Europe, I'd probably actually just call that European standards. Okay, and that was that's that, and now back to the discussion. But anyway, so then, so that was the top down and the bottom up approaches. But then, you know, then we have more organic things, I guess, like entertainment. You can change cultural norms quite powerfully with music, movies, books, TV, advertisements, newspapers, magazines, music videos, so on and so on. And then there's also the internet, which may or may not be a subset of entertainment here, you know, so Twitter and Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, blogs, Tumblr, etc., and so forth. So, I mean, uh, can you think of any other or levers that you could use for enacting a change of social norms, or have I hit them all? I, I think you, you hit the
0: main ones. I would say that entertainment and the internet can actually be used by those top down def- approaches or by the bottom up approaches. So mm-hmm.
1: they're less. So they're more a tool.
0: Yeah, they're more a tool. Because, like, if you're thinking of entertainment, like music, movies, books, etc., that can be propaganda.
1: But what if uh, it's not intentional? What if, what if you just got, you know, this music industry executive who's like, "We gotta sell albums," <laughs> and and then it's like, "Let's let's make some music videos," and and then you know, you've got people who are just putting in stuff in music videos because they think it's cool, or because they think it'll stir up controversy, or because. They think it'll get people excited and want to buy the music. But so they're not intentionally trying to change the culture, but they're pushing boundaries. I would I would say that's definitely from the grassroots sort
0: of in it just in that it's sort of a product of individual or a small group of people just sort of deciding like this is cool and we want this in the zeitgeist as opposed to it being a government mandated like, you know, like we want we are intentionally trying to change this norm because it is, you know, unintentional and and unconscious. Um, it's something that these music video artists or musicians are sort of pulled towards, but not through any kind of dictate or any kind of passion for, like, for example, some
1: nonprofit organization. Oh, yeah, and then there's also, like, the Me Too movement. And so, you know, stuff that 20 years ago was perfectly fine, in some quarters anyways, is now today beyond the pale. Um, And in part, I think, because of the Me Too movement, because women finally just got fed up with being treated like dirt. So this is also, a, you know, it has a long ways to go. But at the moment, this is a very profound change, I think, in the culture, cultural norms.
0: It means a lot to see big sort of celebrities being held accountable for their actions by the people who have been hurt by those actions. It sends a message to other people that you can't get away with this kind of thing anymore.
1: But you know, so here's a weird thing. I, you know, I think most people would agree. Let's say domestic violence is wrong, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's a cultural norm. I think that we all agree upon domestic violence is wrong. And yet, it's very pervasive throughout our cultures so that I don't know what to think about that. I don't know, because I'm obviously, I'm not an academic who studies cultural norms. So I don't, there's probably a word for so this kind of, I don't know if that's deviance or disobedient. I don't know. I don't know what the term for it would be.
0: Outliers perhaps,
1: but it, they're not outliers. When you yeah. look at how, how frequently domestic violence happens. It's true. It's true. And, um,
0: again i think it's because that cultural culture is unevenly distributed so for example where i live right now or not even not even my city but just like say like the community i'm in yeah domestic violence is beyond the pale
1: and yet like- it happens and probably even the people who do it would probably be like oh yeah it's terrible But I don't know, maybe people rationalize these things.
0: I can relate this back to the environment, actually. Sorry. Okay. (laughs) For a second. Um, There are forms of violence that we don't recognize as violence. There is a concept called slow violence. It was coined by Robert Nixon in a book called Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor. And it's basically arguing that we don't see the violence of, say setting up a mining facility upstream from a community however the fact that the runoff from that mining is poisoning the drinking water of the town that is violence it has the same effect as waving a wand over a child and saying you are going to get cancer
1: because perhaps
0: that child will cancer within 20 years because not
1: not waving a wand, actually just feeding it the chemicals that will give it cancer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's maybe a better metaphor. (laughs) (laughs) I mean let's let's be direct about this.
0: Yeah. But because that violence is sort of it's it's a sneaky sort of violence. It's a violence that we don't see as direct and spectacular. And in the moment it's not like there is a single moment of violence. (laughs) It's something that's spread out over time in the same way that environmental violence, a lot of environmental violence is spread out over time. When we talk about the environment, we need to think in this like deep time scale. We need to think about things being spread out over a time that is
1: longer than perhaps we are used to. Um, Uh, I don't know if this is a norm thing. I think this is really hard. And I think our brains are, are really not quite adapted for, these kinds of, I guess they're abstractions, but like when you can't see cause and effect actually happening in front of you or when you can't, when you drive your car, you get no sense that you're driving global warming. You can't sense the damage you're doing.
0: Yeah, and so that is sort of a violence that
1: we just can't see and we cannot perceive as being violence. And so it's the same thing as... And it's hard to feel responsible for it, like in the moment. I mean, unless you're, you know really have a lot of anxiety about it just bringing it back to sort of
0: interpersonal violence the sort of violence of say punching someone yeah we read that as violence as as domestic violence as violence between two people but constantly nagging another person constantly greeting them with negative words all the time and belittling them and telling them that they can't do a thing etc we don't tend to read that as violence because in the moment it's not as violent as a punch to the face but the cumulative effect oh insidious
1: yeah and yet someone on the outside looking in might recognize that as maybe maybe they wouldn't call it violence but they would recognize it is wrong and horrible and you need to get away from that person
0: yeah and that's why communities are important because some people can see these things a lot better than other people for example, I I can't see certain things because I need them explained to me, very detailed. And I don't pick up on, <laughs> when, like a very mundane example, when I was just starting university, I was at the age where lots of my peers were
1: flirting with me and I could not tell. You only learned about it because your friends told you about it?
0: It was it was sort of an afterwards sort of thing. So I needed those people to point something out to me. In the same way that doing violence, you might not even know that you are experiencing a form of violence until someone points it out to you and you are able to... <laughs> you mean like your cat? <laughs> Pardon me? You mean yes. like your cat? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very... He is having violence done to him by the fact that I am not
1: directly looking at him and petting him. (laughs) But okay, to pull this back to solar punk then, and changing cultural norms, how can solar punk start pulling levers, not just within its own movement? Because I think solar punk tries very hard to police itself and maintain a very rigid set of cultural norms, um, but across a broader swath of society. Well, I think what's really nice about solar punk
0: is the fact that it is sort of applicable to a lot of people pretty much everybody can be a solar punk you know you can you can pick it up and there are people at every stage in the movement basically and they can bring that with them into whatever walk of life that they have so yeah the future is unevenly distributed and we all live in different cultures But if we all agree on solar punk values and are part of a solar punk community, we can maybe, when we go away from that solar punk community, we can bring a bit of that with us into wherever we are. Right.
1: Okay. So we can, you know, we've got, we've got, we're at the bottom up end and, and, you know, until we've got solar punk, you know, I don't know, (laughs) like government executives. Um,
0: I don't think if we had solar punk government executives, our government would look very very different you know like i i'm definitely in the camp that like society needs to be organized by some people you know like but i don't think any sort of solar punk system is going to look like what we have now so if we had solar punk government officials
1: i'm not sure i'm not sure they'd be nudging people to do the right thing yeah yeah but anyways okay so we've got we've got we're at the bottom, we're working bottom up so what do we what do we have to do aside from you know have community gardens and have little podcasts where we talk about solar punk and <laughs> um and you know write solar punk stories I mean I guess these are way we're all ways in which we're all not just trying to imagine the future but to to change cultural norms for the better I think that's definitely where you know art comes into
0: it, like you mentioned stories and well, these podcasts, but then also, you know, Oh visual. oh, are we a work of art? Oh, that's
1: awesome.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, technically if you go down to the base of the turn. <laughs> um, anyways, yeah, just I I mean, I'm thinking of that solar punk art installation that John threat was talking about. Um Yeah,
1: but, that as we're recording it hasn't ended yet. Yeah, yeah. But by the time this comes out, it'll be over and you will have to totally missed yeah. it hopefully that changes the minds of some of the
0: people in the culture that is, you know, the art scene in CalArts
1: and, um or encourages them. Or, or in Los Angeles, or, you know, uh, I most people haven't heard of solar punk. So, I mean, it opens doors just by letting people know it exists and that it has these particular certain goals and values and, you know, look, this is cool. And, and there's this tech and there's this music and there's these, this social agenda, and here are these radical people giving, and not just radical in the 1980s sense of the word. Like, oh, dude, that's a radical person, um, but well, radical well, really thinkers giving the radical in the 1980s sense. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, uh, you know, giving speeches and and doing all sorts of cool stuff that I missed because I'm in Germany right now and not in Los Angeles. Mm. <laughs>
0: Hey, there's there's a lot of really cool stuff going on in Europe right now. So um, in terms of, you know, environmental events
1: and and art, I'm getting well, there. There are solar punk collectives in Berlin. And yeah. I'm in France and yeah in Italy and probably in Spain as well so it's you know it's interesting because I realize I've never met a solar punk in real life I think I I I might have said this on on one of the more previous podcasts recent podcasts um I haven't even met you in real life yeah I know When,
0: when when is that
1: gonna happen yeah I don't know you know I've never been to Canada
0: yeah, well, I've never been to Germany, so you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, Canada's bigger though, and it's closer to. I mean, I've been very close to Canada. I've, but yeah, I think that
0: um, solar punk's sort of like role, I think, in cultural change is not so much like dictating from a top-down structure. That is not at all what we want to do. That's kind of against solar punk ideals I would say Mm -hmm. but instead sort of opening up that space for imagine for a more positive imagination of the future and saying look here are not just one alternative but many different positive alternatives to the cultures plural that you currently live in and the ways plural that you currently live and there are I don't want to say like an escape hatch for capitalism but like you know or or that sounds cute though an escape hatch
1: for the dystopia. Do we get to wear a parachute too?
0: <laughs> like there's, there is, you know, like there are little little nuggets of a solar punk future poking through this dystopian present right now and um, being able to change people's perspectives so that they feel empowered to be able to create that future in the, even despite the current conditions of the present. So whether that's, you know, like, picking up litter or giving a speech um, to a lot of different academics about, you know, like brighter futures, or if it's, you know, like uh, bringing it into your work as say a biogeochemist and um, looking to, you know, save, I don't know, what do biogeochemists do? I was about to say, you know, like save sea life, but... Uh...
1: Oh, no, no, not at all. Not at all. Um, You know, I'm biogeochemistry understand how elements like carbon or silicon or uh, phosphorus or whatever cycle through the various reservoirs in the Earth system.
0: Well, see, that's really, really important. And that is the kind of knowledge that needs to be shared a bit more, I think, with people. So maybe... Uh... Bring in sort of a way to communicate that with non-academics or to communicate that with scientists and communicate that in a I don't want to say political way but like not a a neutral way not a like here is this information but a here's this information that we can use to be able to bring about a a less climate changed future or
1: yeah it's interesting information you do need Sometimes information to get you to the point where you think you should start changing norms, or to get people to think, "Ah, I'm thinking about this wrong," or "I'm going about this all wrong." But I'm, yeah, the scientists, I'm not sure, have really been have had that much luck changing our norms about climate change. And they've been trying. We, they, whatever, have been trying since the '80s. Oh, yeah, really hard, (laughs) you know. But interference though like um i can talk from the canadian example
0: back in back in the earlier decade of this century um the current prime minister at the time muzzled scientists so that they couldn't actually communicate their data they were not allowed to by law wow why
1: even fund science
0: areas were were burned well not burned
1: but like you know we're just was this that Ford guy? No, who was this? No, no, this is it was Stephen Harper. No, yeah, okay, well, we don't want to go down this road yeah. here. So um, it's
0: on my mind. Yesterday, there were a whole bunch of anti-trans protests in, all of,
1: like all across Ontario. Um, well, uh, so this is okay. So this is a I weird thing.
0: Trans agenda and trans ideology. So.
1: This is weird. So here, you know, so we've. I mean. Okay, society has undergone some revolutionary change in our thinking of these LGBTQ issues within mm-hmm. the last 30 years, and it's clear that there's a segment of society that is going into meltdown about this because it, this is revo- This is revolutionary, right? I mean, it shouldn't be right. Treating people like human beings should not be revolutionary, but somehow it is. I, uh, a friend of mine said, you know, this is messy and it's ugly and there's tension and protests and because we this is a revolution mm-hmm. and we should see it that way we this is a revolution in in uh, the changing of our norms in society you know not long ago it was illegal to be gay and now we have gay marriage uh, this kind of thing and it it's and there's lots of trans people suddenly Everywhere people who didn't even know they were trans or that it was possible to be trans are like, oh, my God, I'm trans. And I'll tell you that because I have the freedom to do that now and it's safe to do that now. OK. And so now you have all these people who are There's like, no, no, no. Like when I was growing up, like the
0: like there just wasn't language around it, you know. And so it's so great that kids these days have the language around it. And I was reading a post the other day. um, that sort of speaks a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with the sort of interpersonal cultural change, how you were saying that, or well, how it's a fact, basically, that, you know, people don't think that, well, most people don't think that uh, gay men are, you know, crimes against God or, or whatever it is, you know, like, there, there's not such pervasive homophobia, because people tend to have this interpersonal relationship with people who are gay. And, um, people who have felt comfortable coming out to them, and so there's this pervasiveness in society. Um, however, with the AIDS epidemic that happened, that killed off a massive swath of people who identified as LGBTQ, and unfortunately, there have been a lot of calls in the trans community, or a lot of questioning, rather, of you know, where are the trans elders? Where are our gay elders? It's like, well, actually. They the government deliberately let them die because of the AIDS crisis. Yeah, a lot of the trans elders, um, a lot of the people who perhaps could have been part of that slower sort of like transformation of of, you know like interpersonal acceptance of trans people because they Mm -hmm. felt it was okay to to come out as trans just weren't there, and so now all of a sudden it seems like there's tons of of you know like these like trans people coming out of nowhere well they're not coming out of nowhere but we're also no i
1: think there was a watershed but as well that some threshold that got crossed where people also felt safe enough to actually be public about themselves
0: yeah yeah and i mean (laughs) can i Mm -hmm. where we try to you know like instill these uh I guess, uh, quote-unquote, liberal values in in our kids and, and you know, like, raise the next generation to be better than their elders. Well, they are better than their elders. <laughs> like, you know, acceptance and knowing who they are. And the elders are like, no, not like that.
1: No, well, they're better than their elders, except for the ones watching the Andrew Tate videos. But anyways. Oh, yeah. So, solar punks, gotta go out, work on changing everybody's cultural norms here for the better.
0: Yeah, and I think, I mean, like, it circles back to what we were talking about in, honestly, our first ever episode of Solar Punks.
1: Oh, God, know, I have no idea. I don't remember. What did we talk about? We talked about
0: manifestos
1: and whether... Oh, solar yeah. Punk yeah,
0: something. yeah. Okay. We do something. And so, you know, um, I don't think Solar Punks should feel obligated to,
1: you know... Knock on them. doors like missionaries?
0: <laughs> yeah, no. You. I mean, can I talk know, to you today about solar punk? <laughs> you have to save a certain number of souls to, you know, <laughs> part of the solar punk club. That's not how it works. Uh, I mean, like being a solar punk and holding solar punk values. That can just be like you might just be living your life the way that you feel is best, and that best aligns with your solar punk values. And even that just inspires
1: people. To oh, it helps ha- normalize it.
0: Yeah, exactly. It helps normalize it. Just by by being who you are, it helps normalize the things that you value and acceptance of others and compassion and kindness and all of these things that we as solar punks want to enact into the culture. It's not a matter of being a solar punk evangelist and saying, you need to do this to be a solar punk, or you need to act this certain way to be a solar punk. I think it's a very much embodied experience of being a solar punk. If you hold these solar punk values, you're necessarily going to act in accordance with them, and that is going to change how you interact with the world. It's just going to happen naturally. I don't think people need to put pressure on themselves to be a
1: solar punk in terms of cultural change. so Yeah, but you know, it's, it's interesting how, you know, one of this core, I'm not quite sure what the right word is, not tenet, but aspects. One of the core aspects of solar punk is writing fiction,
0: mm-hmm. right?
1: With this fiction where you, you help bring about the future by visualizing the future that you want to, ha- that you think would be really cool to live in. And yet, right, here's a way that solar punk doesn't even realize it's working on changing cultural norms. Yeah, so that is exactly what that action is aiming to do.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think like the most important, I guess, cultural work of solar punk is to expand that imagination of what is possible and
1: visualize those sustainable futures. And yeah. you know, and like... ultimately to have a canon. Yeah, well, you know, like I... a core set of solar punk stories, maybe, you know, or Canadian literature I want to
0: be very careful to say that maybe we shouldn't be canonizing things. (laughs) It's helpful to have a, a core list of inspirational solar punk works. But if you create, if you deliberately create a canon, suddenly people begin to have that feeling of, you know, like I have to write with these themes only in order to be included in this solarpunk canon i cannot go outside of what has already been established within this uh so, like solarpunk canon oh, yeah, Whereas, i
1: don't but wouldn't you say there are people who'll be like oh but that's not solarpunk already
0: yeah yes yeah so i think you know like the idea of a canon should always be contested i th- I, I think it's handy to have like a certain amount of solarpunk uh, fiction materials that you would send to someone who said, "Hey, I've just learned about solar punk and I'd love to read more. Can you recommend some books to me?" But recommend the books that you like. Don't recommend them because you think they're the best, like example of solar punk, but you don't necessarily like the stories. You know? And yet,
1: isn't there sort of already on some level a bit of a solar punk canon?
0: I think there is, just by way of how time works. <laughs> And how, you know, like how scarce it is that we have a lot of aggregated published solar punk works. So uh, say short story collections and stuff like that, it's um, they're easier to find sort of disparately online, but putting them together into some sort of traditionally published format is more difficult.
1: I think I also meant the nonfiction stuff, the videos, the Tumblr posts, the the manifestos,
0: What's nice about Tumblr is that it's fairly ephemeral. So sometimes, sometimes there are Tumblr posts that that are evergreen and you can come back to. but Or, or legendary. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. A vintage, one might say. Yeah, I think it's incumbent on punks to always be thinking about how to challenge that or how to expand on it, you know?
1: What else can we stuff into the carrier bag?
0: Yeah, or, you know, like how how is this story like an inspiration for or or like a first step on the on the ladder and now you can build the second step and so like it's not that you know like once you build the second step then that first step doesn't matter anymore and it goes away you're still going to need that first step to support but also saying that some solar punk fiction was written pre me too movement
1: well yeah right so sometimes things do feel kind of obsolete because the norms have changed
0: but, I mean, there are also some things in some solar punk stories where the norms have changed that are obsolete feeling. But then, you know, maybe they envision a really cool setting. And that's something
1: that still is green. Relevant. <laughs> and that brings us to the end of Season 3. Woo! Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you'll come join us for Season 4. And in the meantime, by the time you're hearing this, it's about 99% certain that our brand new website is up. We've had it totally redesigned. It's so much better now. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. Same old address, brand new look. So check it out. Thank you for listening to Solar Funk Presence, a podcast hosted and produced by Ariel Kroon, and Christina Della Rocha.
0: The audio for this episode was recorded in part on the traditional territory of the Neutral
1: Haudenosaunee, and Anishinaabe peoples. And in Germany. The opening and closing music for this podcast is Water Cooler Gang by Monkey Warhol, available for use under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, join our Patreon at www.patreon.com backslash solarpunkpresence. Or share the podcast with friends, family, and people you
0: know who might be interested in our guests and what we have to say. We'd also love it if you could write us a nice review on your podcatcher of choice, because every review bumps us higher in the algorithm's priority, so we can reach more listeners.
1: Until the next episode, keep dreaming and keep up the good work.